Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Look out. It's only films to be buried with The Resurrection. Hello, my name is Brett Goldstein. I'm a comedian, an actor, a writer, a director, a dream weaver, and I love film. As Lao Tzu once said, being deeply loved by someone gives you strength, while loving someone deeply gives you courage. Love the film Shoplifters and it will love you hard back. Agreed. So agreed. Nice one, Lao Tzu. Every week I invite a special guest over, I tell them they've died, then I get them to discuss their life through the films that meant the most to them. But not this week! This week I use my newly acquired shamanic powers to bring back a former guest from the dead and ask them 12 new questions. This week is the return of the brilliant stand-up actor, writer, podcaster, brilliant all-round brain, Mr. Dane Baptiste. Head over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein where you get an extra 25 minutes of chat with Dane where we go deep, really deep. We talk about beginnings, endings. He's got an amazing secret. We also get the whole episode uncut and as a video. Check it out over at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein. As usual, please watch Ted Lasso on the Apple TV Plus app. You can also watch the film that we made in 2015, Super Bob, and the show Soulmates, both of which are available on Amazon Prime in most countries. So, Dane Baptiste. Dave Baptiste, I mean, I've had him on the show once before and then I re-released this episode because it was so incredible with a new introduction. But this is the first time I'm having him back for a full, all-new resurrection. I always feel like it's a bit of a privilege just to talk to him for an hour. And we recorded this very recently. And as usual, he blew my fucking mind. And I think you'll feel the same way. It's an excellent episode with an excellent man. I hope you love it. So that is it for now. I very much hope you enjoy episode 185 of films to be buried with the resurrection hello and welcome to films to be buried with the resurrection i am joined back today for the in fact the third time on this podcast a record-breaking third time he's an actor he's a writer he's a stand-up He's a lover. He's a gentleman. He's a warrior. He's been on the news. He's been in your house. He's been on your telly. He's the, one of the greatest brains we have in Britain. Please welcome to the show, the hero, the legend, the wonder, it's Mr. Dave Baptiste. Oh, thank you so much for such a wonderful introduction. I'm going to need that in writing, but no, thank you Hello, very much. Dave. Hello. Hello. And, uh, Happy New Year to you and the listeners, and uh, it is a pleasure to be a part of what's turned into a trilogy. So, uh, 
Yeah. It's so good. You, you yeah, I had you on once. Your episode blew everyone's mind, blew everyone's mind so much that we did a re-release of it, which I almost never do, with a new introduction from you. And uh, I had to leave a little gap before I could bring you back to life. I'm fucking delighted to have you back. And I actually haven't seen you in ages. What a nice tree. How's it been? If it's been good, man. This is like, I feel like this is the opposite of a, of a triple threat, like a triple delight. It's been a while. <laughs> I'm back. Part of a trilogy. Good to see your face again. Um, so, yeah, all good things. I'm real happy to be back. And um, I think, you know, as far as resurrections go, where movies are mm-hmm. concerned, I want this to be a good one. Okay. It always go well, as I'm sure we all know. I've got no doubt about that. A couple of things I want to talk to you about. Firstly, you did an amazing, a truly brilliant pilot called uh, Bamus. Uh, mm-hmm. Was this last year? Yeah, it was last year. I really, really loved it. It was so funny and clever and brilliant. Is there going to be more Bamus? I'm hoping so. I don't think it's going to happen with the BBC, um, <sighs> but I'm hoping to take the format and the uh, concept forward elsewhere. So if there are any producers listening, then... I have have ideas, will travel. But yeah, it's still, it's a shame. It's uh, got a lot of good feedback and I'd like to, to have continued uh, with the BBC where it started. But um, for a number of unforeseen circumstances, it doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. But um, we'll see, we'll see. I'm sure it'll be, it will be reincarnated in another guise, but I'm hoping, uh, based on the feedback I've got, that somebody will see the potential. Oh, so we'll see if, how it goes. if anyone is listening to this and hasn't seen Bamus, watch Bamus, then can you please buy it and put it on your telly? There's a joke in that that I think I've quoted so many times but credited you don't worry but i think it's a, a near perfect joke about about dancing do you remember it oh yes i know the one yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. i'm not even gonna do it that will give you everyone's got to go and watch go, go and watch famous yeah, what's the dancing bit exactly that's how good people have to go and watch it yeah exactly no plot spoilers i'm afraid so it's lovely to have you back now last time we we spoke Last time we spoke was in the middle of the Black Lives Matters marches that were happening. There was a real uh, movement going on, it seemed. And I guess what I wanted to ask your brain, because you know I like to hang out in it, how do you feel a year after that? I think it's a year now, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, about about a year. with all the big sort of seismic events that happened in the world in the last year, how much do you think has changed? How much has stayed the same? How much is worse? How much is better? How do you feel now about the general state of things? I feel like there is there seems to be a drive for those who have enjoyed the privilege of and profit from the status quo, mm-hmm. trying to shift us back to a previous state where these things happen and what you don't get is a large vocalised backlash or the articulation of people's plight. But I think that we've probably passed the point whereby we can go back to that in the first place. So I think while that's happening, that was happening uh, alongside the pandemic, just uh, the social fabric has uh, changed. It's been restitched in some places. I think it's been frayed in others. And I think there's a lot of elements to previous institutions that have allowed things like racism to perpetuate. The figureheads of these institutions now are, uh, they're untenable. I think we're at a point now mm. where when a head of a country is, when is being critiqued for their incompetence in their job and their response is to call an opposition leader an apologist for a, a, a child molester. I think we are kind of getting to the, uh, <laughs> we're, getting, we're, getting, we're getting to the, we're getting to the, uh, the coder of the, the song. end of the ride. 
to so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting to the end of the road. Yeah, we're, 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 start, we're starting to wrap things up. I think yeah. As, aspect ratio is about to change <laughs> on this movie that we call life. Yeah. Um, it's sad to say that I feel like a lot of things haven't changed. I think, um, however, I mean, revolution and uh, social progression is not something that can happen even in the space of a year. So I think mm. that um, awareness has been created. I think there is certain elements of nomenclature and ideas that a larger audience are aware of now that they weren't necessarily aware of. I think even the discussion of something like privilege, for example, is a yeah. uh, was a conversation that people were very reticent or very defensive about having. I think people are a lot more uh, prepared to indulge conversations about privilege than they have been before. Um, I think positively, voice more marginalised voices are uh, being able to speak and be able to participate in discourse. And I think some of the backlash people are getting is just, you know, I think there's a lot of dinosaurs that can see a meteor over their way of life. Yeah. They don't really like it. So I feel like there's been some change. It's not been a drastic one. And I think people are trying to move things back to how they were. But I think that's the normal uh, pathology of people who realise that their way of life is about to change and mm. and the social fabric around them is changing, that people can be very resistant to that. But I think things are changing whether people want them to or not. But yeah, we've still got a very long way to go. But it's only, but it's only been a year, you know. And uh, yeah. as I said takes longer than a year for things to change but then all it takes is for one thing to change everything straight away so i think we're going on as usual when we last spoke we talked about because it really it really hit me that american hollywood films the cops are the good guys like that is like such a base narrative for so many films it's like yeah we're watching a film about cops (laughs) and and it was only in all the, you know, stuff of the last few years where it was like, hang on a minute. <laughs> are they yeah, the, cops what? aren't good. Yeah, <laughs> they don't do this stuff. I think, I, think that, I think that was that was an epiphany we all reached, especially, I mean, black community especially have been fooled because a lot of the time that's the natural progression for like rappers that transcend into like making films and television is that they often yeah. play police officers. And so the benevolence of law enforcement has been, bra- we've been brainwashed by the idea of the benevolence of law enforcement a lot of the time. A lot of your comedic heroes, it's normally like buddy cops, so like yeah, it's normally the aesthetic they go for. So buddy cop films make us all think, oh, the police are cool. They're the ones that yeah. get on with, they speak to animals and they get on with <laughs> funny black dudes. And so I think we've all been like, hey, this is not what happens in real life. Yeah. It's, been, it's been a rude awakening for everyone involved, really. And do you think, because in terms of, you know, we're, we're talking about culture, is it, do you think there's been change? I mean, all I can tell you, I haven't seen all of it, but I'm aware that Brooklyn Nine-Nine as a show that I think they, for their final season, is a funny cop show if you've never seen it, I think that they were all, like, uncomfortable and they were like, I think they changed the the fabric of the show. I don't know exactly what they did, but they definitely did something different Yeah, because they were like, oh, we can't all just be great guys. Yeah, they, they, I think they, they've always been very good at kind of addressing a lot of these issues within Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, yeah. Obviously, there's a limit to which or how much they are able to delve into these very difficult topics. I think it's much. It's definitely more of a personality-led show than it is about kind of glorifying yeah. law enforcement. So I kind of yeah, I take it with a pinch of salt, really. But I think it's a good example of you know people using their platform responsibly to kind of have these conversations. And I'm almost and you know comedy is normally one of the most. I think it's probably one of the most effective ways of approaching taboo subjects. And I think. You know, when you give it, I think when you give it the quintessential sitcom audience, that's not normally something that people want to have discussed on a show like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. This is quite, it's good to see the approach, I suppose. So, you are now on tour, correct? Yeah. So, I'm going to be finishing off my tour. So, my tour, my tour was postponed 
during the beginning of the pandemic. And then I did a few shows out of London, but I'm trying to finish the show. I'm able to finish the tour show now uh, in London. So where it started before the pandemic started, I was at the Soho Theatre and I'm returning to the Soho Theatre in March to do the last uh, last week of shows. Do you, Has your tour show changed? Is it the same as it was a year ago when it, you had to keep postponing it? It's not changed a lot, I think, because thematically, I was already kind of discussing the issues that have been at the forefront of uh, public discourse for the last couple of years. So my mm-hmm. show was basically about, you know, how people interpret or perceive black anger and how that's kind of either commodified or is weaponized. And it was really a show that was about having a unfiltered conversation about race relations in the UK and addressing a lot of the uh, defensive reactions, whether it's like it's not as bad as America or class mm. freeze modern race in the UK, or we're not as bad. It's really a show that's been like, we're at the point now where we can't deny the divisions that exist within this country, whether they are along racial lines, national lines, uh, even down to our divisions of North and South and bipartisan lines. And if you fail to address it on a literal skin deep level, then division is going to break apart a whole country. And so the last two years have kind of been me being like, no, no one to say, I told you so. So it's actually been quite... <laughs> Quite gratifying, really, uh, to see like you know this is all the, all the stuff I'm say I've been saying in shows for years. Yeah. And when critics have tried to play it down, is now part of the massive overt conversation that everyone's having in every kind of arena of um, discourse. So yeah, for me, yeah, the show's not really need to change much. Yeah, I just, I just it's more of updating jokes and updating material just to make it more exciting for me and for audiences itself. Yeah. But as far as the themes of the shows and what the show discusses, like, you know, it's probably been more poignant than ever. The world has finally caught up with you. Yeah, basically. I like that. Particularly in this country. So it's uh it's been yes, it's been it's been it's been it's been cool in that respect. And you know, as a result of which I've seen some change in the aesthetic of the landscape of comedy in this country. But there's still a lot of work to do and I still address some of that in the show as well. Because I still think we're at a point now where black creativity, particularly in the UK, is still seen somewhat as a monolith. And even though people are able to kind of transcend or like multitask to an extent in our industry, I still feel like, you know, as a comic, you probably get passed over in this country as a black comic for a rapper or a more prominent influencer in comedy than your white counterpart would. Like, I don't imagine that Professor Green, for example, would be the go-to to present or be on the panel of Taskmaster. Whereas as a black comic, you're still kind of competing with black influencers and black rappers and singers. And so we're still not at a point where there's enough nuance given to the work we contribute towards creativity. So that's the large part of what the show is about. But the show is really just about the fact that, like, you know, it's uh, really me just trying to uh, provoke people to kind of be like, be open about what pisses you off. Like, you know, if we're all having discussions about mental health, then there's no reason why anger and how to process that, particularly the state that we're in now, Mm. Um, should be a difficult conversation to have. Like people have been very isolated. They must have been felt very marginalized. And, you know, most people perceive convicts and inmates to be uh, naturally aggressive. But, you know, that's an experience that we've all shared of not being able to have our, our personal freedoms restricted, not having access to our families. So it would be uh, remiss of us not to think that we've developed somewhat of, somewhat of a chip on our shoulders as a result of like the, the last, the events of the last two years. So... Just the show's kind of be being like, you know, like in the film network, me being like, we're mad as hell. We're not going to take it anymore. <laughs> and you listen, you're a very, very cerebral man. Is that fair to say? As in? I'd like to think so, yeah. You're certainly the one of the smartest people I know. 
try to think more than I speak is what I try to do, really. I think most people think I'm maybe a bit too loquacious, but I'm like, I try to think a lot more than I speak. And I like to think as well in a world where, you know, it's a very much democratised world of opinions. I like to think that I take time to think about what I say before I say it. So Yeah. How, how much are you, when you talk about anger and stuff, how much are you angry or how much are you, because you always seem to me very, listen, this is how you come across and it may not, of course, be yeah. true. You come across as very calm and thoughtful. It's like in a way that like if one is in therapy and you're often yeah. told step back from the feeling and just observe it and then yeah. don't don't get overwhelmed by the feeling the way you come across as a friend and as a person is is that is like the quite enlightened in yeah. terms of you seem calm and you see the stuff and you deal with it is that true or are you secretly fucking fuming all the time want to kill everyone oh no i think i think that's very true i think i i personally think um as, exactly as you described me and i try to be very analytical and cerebral and yeah to look at things from a more objective perspective but i think and this is this is why i've never told anybody before um is that my, my anger really is it's how i'm processed more like humanitarian sorrow like I'm really worried for the world and I really worry about where we're going as people. But it's uh so what people tend to perceive as me being angry is more the fact that uh my heart bleeds for the world and it's more and the tone is rather than being accusatory, it's more alarmist. Uh I really try in my work try to warn people of what can happen if they don't address a lot of these uh, complexes that they may have. So for example, like, you know, I read about people like Kanye or I read about, you know, incidences of people like Frank Bruno and stuff who have mm. uh, succumbed to, like, acute issues of mental health. And I'm like, I'm not really surprised. It's, it's, I don't think people really, when they consider representation, it's not really necessarily about box ticking or filling quotas or numbers itself. It's human beings are a social species. And so our self-image contributes massively to our, uh, you know, to our state of mental health. And um, if you don't see or hear anything that seems to represent yourself, then you can lose a sense of self. And, you know, over time... That can definitely affect you. And uh, I've, I've learned, as we all do, that our careers and our profile can kind of wax and wane in uh, the creative industry. But really, peace of mind is the one thing you can't necessarily buy. And it's, you know, you look at someone like Kanye West now and he's uh, going through a divorce and it's been a very public one. And this has all happened after him becoming a billionaire. And, mm. you know, people have all of their opinions about the state of his relationship with Kim Kardashian and stuff like that. And I just think to myself, I'm like, yeah, well, the thing is, if you strip down all of the profile and pomposity around the, these two names or brands, like Kim Kardashian is an Armenian woman whose ancestors or parents would have fled Armenia to escape a genocide, um, essentially is raising four black children. So mm -hmm. to watch the father of her children cozy up next to a man who wanted to lynch four black men for a crime they didn't commit, mm -hmm. like, of course she'd leave you. And for me, it's kind of like, how do people not see that and the, the, the things that people tend to focus on? I just find it crazy. But it's even like, you know, when I look at the state of our political system now, for me, like when people um, might see tweets from me or have or narratives which appear to be angry, my anger really stems from the fear that I don't really think people understand how bad austerity is going to be. And I really feel like if people were aware of how the powers that be are planning to damage your way of life i think we would have a revolution i think you know even now there's people are hearing about like rising energy prices and stuff so yeah it, it does it gets really worrying so i guess anger's sometimes a way of processing it but every now and again but I, I tend to find 
that uh, being able to have the catharsis, whether it's through performance or even talking to people, is actually very helpful. And I and I always say that, and, I, and I, a lot of the time I do get like, my detractors kind of like frown at this, but I always feel like the uh, psychiatry industry probably wouldn't be as prosperous if we all had people we could just talk to about shit like this. <laughs> I really, I really feel like it wouldn't be as like, even like antidepressants wouldn't sell the way they would if people could just talk honestly to other people without feeling the need to politically identify with an agenda or an idea and just be able to empathize with other people. I think most people believe that, but most people are forced to conform into a narrative because they live within a capitalist society or they're from a particular culture. Is this, is, is is that your way of dealing when you get, if you get overwhelmed sadness or anger or, or fear or any of it do you, do you do other things do you meditate do you or is it just talking to people yeah. is that your I guess I, I guess talking to people only because I guess I feel that my internal monologue about this stuff is the, is the part that most people can identify with mm-hmm. and I really feel like at the quantum of most of, of most human beings there's esoteric truths that people actually know uh but they're just not prepared to do it so uh you know, I think sometimes people go will go and see a therapist with a partner or they may have couples therapy or, you know, and I feel like it's you even because a therapist can't involuntarily make someone take accountability for their actions. There's a limit to which that person can kind of be engaged. So the, the true efficacy of something like psychiatry requires morality for it to work, even though it's supposed to be like a science. You need someone who cares enough about the people they may have affected or cares about preserving whatever paradigm relationship they have with people to be honest about who they are. And, you know, I think it's that, that lack of interpersonal honesty we all have, that's going to ultimately be the most damaging thing to our species. And I think, you know, don't look up was like a real, Mm. real nice cathartic film that I saw recently that really helped me to kind of be like, it's not just me. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not just me, especially from that from that perspective as well. Where it's like, oh, so obviously everyone knows the truth, but they just fuck it out like they don't. Yeah. And for me, the, yeah, that was uh, it's very gratifying to see. God bless you, Dame Baptiste. Um, Dame Baptiste, you have <laughs> been brought back to life because I well like you. You get a second chance, but what point in your life will you come back to? What will you change? Any regrets? Or will you start exactly where you left off? Decide now. Dane? <laughs> Good question. Um, I'm going to start off where I left off. Let's just get back to it. Let's just get back to it. No regrets. Nothing to change. Let's mm. get on with it. This is it. Let's get back to it. Let's keep going as we, as we were. Love that. Love that about you. All right. Well, you've come back to life. Everyone's very excited to see you. They've really missed you, actually. Um, hey, everybody. Good to yeah. have you all back. Thank you very much. I can't tell you about heaven. They told me not to see nothing. Ah, oh, really? Nothing? Not even a clue? It's a big part of the whole resurrection <laughs> thing, Brett. There's so much small print up there. Or is it up there? I can't even tell you. I can't even tell you, babe. I'm Do just having to be back. At least tell me they have movie night. Do they have movie night up there? Oh, every night can be movie night. That's why it's called heaven, Brett. Yes. Uh, you've come back to life and people want to talk to you about your life through film, weirdly. And the first thing they ask you is, what was the last film you saw, Dane Baptiste? Well, as I said, I just remembered, I think the last film I saw was Don't Look Up, uh, which was the Netflix film. Um, I'm glad yeah. you liked it. I was in in the same way I felt about Vice. I was surprised that it was so 
uh, divisive is how many people were mad at it. I was like, this is a good film. I had, no, film. I had no beef with it. I found it entertaining. No, I thought no. it was fantastically acted. Yeah, definitely. And very enjoyable. I thought it was really good. I, think it, I thought it was really relatable. I think it's definitely a film. Is it Adam McKay, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of his films, yeah, Adam McKay, I think a lot of his films, they're definitely uh, talent-led in that you can tell a lot of the cast have literally in that film because they love the script and they love the themes yeah. of the film. And you can kind of see that in how uh, it kind of plays out. But yeah, I, I I don't understand how the film can be divisive at all. Like even if you choose to enjoy that film on a satirical or superficial level, then it shouldn't be particularly offensive. It's really just taking lots of contemporary themes that are very relevant that we discuss on a yeah. regular basis and making, yeah, I think very effective archetypes and composites to tell a really good story. So It's a bit like your tour show in that it was written before the pandemic and it just became yeah. more true, like the world caught up with the film. I think in a way, I think what people, weirdly what people were annoyed about with the film is they were, I think that they were like, it's so on the nose, That's, it's like it's not even satire, it's just exactly what's going on. And I think a year before it had been satire, it had been, you know, the yeah. don't look up idea had been made up and then it was like, no, we're all there. <laughs> Here we are. Yeah, we've been there. I mean, I'd say we've been there for a while. I think as soon as yeah. like the head of publicity for the White House said alternate facts, we already yeah. welcomed like lies into our vernacular. And so, and also what's wrong with stuff being on the nose? Like we enjoy ritualistic and stylized violence on the nose all the time. So, mm. you know, a film which doesn't show any over violence or sexuality be on the nose is very telling about, you know, our collective consciousness as people nowadays. Interesting. Yeah. Dame Baptiste, who do you think should play you in the film of your life? That's a good question. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I, is, it, is it a weird thing I never think about, like, a biopic or yeah, who'd play weird. me in a movie. I think it is quite weird. I think about your biopic a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think about yours all the time, <laughs> but not my own one. Um, I'm not sure. I, I leave it open because I feel like in the world of acting, there might be an undiscovered talent there. So I wouldn't necessarily be like, I insist that it's this person or someone that might be already have a profile. You never know where you might find talent. So there might be someone out there who's analysed my uh, speech and mannerism so well. And they're just waiting for this role to come up. So I want to leave the casting open to find that person. But failing that, Kyle Smith Bleno, um, who plays mm, Dean nice. in Stafflet's Flats, he's really funny. <laughs> he, that is a really good and, shout. Uh, we've got, both got a similar haircut, but I think he'd do a great job. That's a really good shout. He yeah. would do a great job. That's perfect casting. You know what you're doing. We're not getting some unknown in. We're getting him. Uh, yeah, we're getting him. Dane Baptiste. What is the... I think... I don't know this for sure. I suspect that you are a romantic. I could yeah, be wrong. I think so. No, no, definitely a romantic. What's the most romantic yeah. film you've ever seen? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. Good question. There's a film, or there's a series of films called Lone Wolf and Cub, and some people might know them as uh, know the film Baby Cart on a River Sticks. Right. But it's, a, it's an old 70s, like, uh, feudal Japan-era action epic like a Japanese film about the samurai called Agami Ito. And it's about, he was a shogun's executioner and a secret ninja clan is trying to replace him. And so they kill his family. And so he goes on a journey to Meifamadu, which is the world of fire in Shinto culture on a bloody path to revenge. 
and he brings along his son as well. And he uh, basically goes on vengeance to avenge his his family. And it's just a very graphic, very violent uh, epic. But I'm like, all of this because your wife died. <laughs> so <laughs> he must really, really love his wife. Like the guy, is, he's a Shogun's executioner, so he's on a healthy wage. Mm-hmm. He's got a son, so he's got an heir. And mm-hmm. then, you know, feudal, patriarchal Japan, he would be fine. But these guys killed his wife. So essentially... Right. He wipes out two ninja clans and basically everyone that stands in his way on his path to hell as he seeks vengeance for the loss of his family. And I'm like, that's, that's love right there. That's pretty romantic. So by your rationale, John Wick is a very romantic film about a man and a dog. I mean, it is, but it's more about the fact that he hasn't got the emotional intelligence to process his grief. Because <laughs> he could just be in a bar and just get drunk about it. But he's like, if my... Lover isn't here. My dog isn't here. Yeah. None of these people should should be here. So it's romantic, but it's more tragic in the fact that it's like these men are so paralyzed by their love of their partners mm. who clearly see something in them that they feel they don't have, that mm. they are just consumed by grief and self-hatred and project that everywhere. And it's just almost like bittersweet to be like, oh, you just need a hug from your missus, mate. <laughs> and I feel like that's such a big part of the complex of toxic masculinity. Yeah. I think there's a, I think there's so many men out there who would just, if they could honestly just say, I loved her with everything and she broke my heart and left me, that mm. there's, we would really address a key part of what makes up the uh, spectre of toxic masculinity and, and yeah. toxic patriarchy and stuff like that. Because there's a lot of men who just can't say, she broke my heart and I loved her with everything. And every day she's gone, I feel like a husk, I'm naked in the cold and darkness. And there is no amount of carnality that will replace the love that this woman had for me so So being able to say that to myself yeah was how i was able to become a good comedian because i had a lot of free evenings and it made a heartbreak definitely made a man of me really and uh yeah definitely and you didn't go on a three film killing spree no no not at all but um but i i know a lot of men tend to project onto these archetypes of and you know incels they do project onto these uh Mm. archetypes of these of these lone wolves that exact vengeance on alphas and the like. And I really feel like a lot of incels, if they could just openly be honest and be like, I loved her and she broke my heart, then we could probably, probably less of a need for those kind of films. Um, so, so, they're, so they're like, they're like men's romance films, really. And I guess yeah. almost, it's almost like the justification that you find for these archetypes to like exact all of this violence is then be like, he had everything and he lost a woman he loved and now he's out for vengeance. And so I guess for men, that's how they feel like by me doing these alpha displays of hyper-stylized violence, it shows I could love a woman and be in a monogamous relationship, (laughs) which is fine. But we could also, as men, try telling her how you feel. And then you won't feel so consumed with grief if you ever lose that opportunity due to unforeseen circumstances. So I'd say that one. Or I'd say, if not Lone Wolf and Cub, a film I saw recently, which was very romantic, was Queen and Slim. I fucking but love Queen and Slim, and that is very really romantic. So romantic. It's so intense. And as yeah. a sexy film. It's such a sexy film. Really great film. Amazing casting. Uh, lovely yeah. in the way and everything she does. But yeah, I thought it was, I, I don't think you get a a greater um, demonstration of love and, and, and black love, which is a genre unto itself, than defending the woman you love from police brutality. Mm. Uh, yeah, so... Mm. I thought that was a really good film. It's a 
still film I see very still see very vividly in my mind that doesn't yeah. require yeah so yeah great film that I wouldn't even need to see again even though it's a very romantic film um but it's romantic for all the right reasons I think personally love prevailing in more strenuous circumstances is a lot more profound than when you see it blossoming in like a rom-com where everyone comes from a very privileged background and London to them is like phone boxes and black taxis yeah. I think if you're facing mortal danger on the run for your life and throughout that you can still act selflessly for somebody else I think that's uh doesn't get really more romantic than that beautiful answer what's the best film you ever saw that you never want to see again Dane Bap tweets <laughs> that's a good question um I think maybe Nomadland <laughs> that's a really good answer I <laughs> yeah. I have to agree <laughs> yeah, it's an it's, it's an amazing film. I think yeah. it's flawlessly done. I think the style, how it's shot, like there's such a very thin line between what has kind of been created for, uh, you know, stories to take a storytelling. Like I can't tell what's real and what's actually been kind mm-hmm. of filmed, and that's why it works so well. Yeah, again, Frost McDormand's another person that rarely ever misses, and um, I think No Man Land is some a film that everyone should see. And the reason why I say I didn't see it once is that if that film doesn't make you act in your best interest for your own personal or spiritual well-being, then I don't know what will. Um, nice. Yeah. But it's, it's that, that, that's the film that's, um, if, if anyone who, who claims to wholeheartedly believe in and support a free economy in the West mm. should watch that film. If you can watch that film and you're fine with it, then yeah. I can't really challenge your perceptions, but I personally feel like if you should watch that film. Yeah. It's also, it surprised me. It was a very lovely film. I think it surprised me how lovely it was as well. Like it, it was a really it was quite profound and, and, and very like warm. I sort of assumed it was going to be a depressing film and there was so much no, warmth yeah, exactly. in it and love. It's a really lovely film. Actually, I take it back. I would watch it again. What's the best <laughs> action film you've ever seen, Dane Buckfreets? Oh, there's so many choices here. I would say Fist of Legend. It's a great film. I think Fist of Legend is the film that was choreographed by the action choreographer Yen Wu Ping and was the reason why Quentin Tarantino recruited him for Kill Bill. Um, the Raid is also very good. Yes. Kind of like The Raid, because it's almost like very rustic in terms of its uh, how it sh- shows the uh, action scenes. As does Ong Bak, I think Tony Jaa is mm-hmm. one of the best action stars since Jackie Chan who was in another one of my favourite action films, which is Armour of God 2, Operation Condor, which has the famous fight between him and the Amazon women, um, which is great. Um, but then also Avengers Endgame, because I've always been a massive comic book fan. So that final scene, when I think there's like 47 characters, I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Hollywood. This is, for me, that was Hollywood and Disney Studios have made up for all of the failed attempts at like adaptations and yeah. all of the times they've given blank checks to people that didn't deserve them. Like after that scene in Avengers Endgame, like I was prepared to forgive Ben Affleck for playing Daredevil. That's how much that meant to me. <laughs> That's huge. Yeah. That's a huge yeah, step in your personal yeah. growth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was I wasn't as vocal about Ben Affleck doing Batman as I was about Daredevil. <laughs> you know, I've been able I've been able to mellow out about about that since I got an order. So much so, like Avengers Endgame has given me so much faith in comic book adaptations that, yeah. like Robert Pattinson, who was he was, was Edward Cullen in Twilight, mm-hmm. and and he's playing Batman, and I'm like, let's give him a go. 
Hey, Let's give I'm, him a go. I'm, I'm team Patterson. He's fucking great. Yeah. He is great. He's no, I'm, great. I'm with that, it. That he is great. great. I got, I got to say, he is great. I've got, I've got nothing against him. He's, he's great. I think, he, I think he'll do a great job. I think, you know, I saw his, his action chops in Tenet, and I like those. Yeah. And uh, you know, I believe in the guy, and um, especially I am really looking forward to seeing Paul Dano as the Riddler. Yeah, that's gonna be really. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia and Yellow, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Good. Of all the films... If you had to, if you had to, Dame Bat Tweets, which film do you think you could have made and why? I've kept this question quite sim- simple, and that's only because I want to show that I have reverence for people that are creators or make an effort to make a feature-length motion picture. So I would say maybe The Blair Witch or Paranormal Activity, and I'm just looking from a purely logistic, <laughs> logistical <laughs> perspective where setting up the shots will probably be the easiest to do with right. those particular films because yeah i i've i um it's like when people in a, in a pub watch a football and they go shit i could do better than that i'm like less than one percent of the people in this entire country could do that so yeah. i doubt you could and you know and the same thing with films and that is very easy to critique these things but at this point i'm like it's not as easy as it looks so i'd go for those two um in terms of logistics but so far as the films that i i would like to have made I have, I mean, I have ideas of fan fiction and films I'd like to make. One being, uh, I wanted to do a a uh, a Blade film. Yes. Um, and I wanted to do it with Killmonger from Black Panther yes. being resurrected as a vampire. And then there's like a Blade and Black Panther crossover. And then they could bring that out for Black History Month. And so... That is a good That would come out right now. Yeah, so... And then also, I also recall Marvel used to have a UK imprint, like at the height of their publishing, they were mm-hmm. like British Marvel comics. And there was uh, a group, there was a duo called Motormouth and Killpower. And Killpower has got like the brain of a child, but he's been like genetically augmented into like this enormous beast, but still has the mind of a child. And he's helped up by Killpower, who's like, she's like a fast talking, like cheeky girl. And she's got a sonic scream. And I thought that would be a good idea for a film. But I, have to, I haven't gone about getting the rights for that. But yeah, those are the get ideas I have. Get the rights now. Get the rights. Yeah, I'm going to get the rights for those. Me. I will do. What is the film you have pretended to like to impress people, Dane Bap tweets? Don't seem a faker to me, but I, maybe you've been this yeah. as you pretended to like something you didn't. Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm not really a faker. I don't really pretend to like stuff. But there are there is a film called Menace to Society. Um, yeah. Which, was it John Singleton? Was it, oh, it was... Um, 
No, it's the, the Hughes That's Brothers. The Hughes Brothers, yeah, the Hughes Brothers. And uh, I like the film to an extent, but not as much as was made out. Like, Menace Society is considered, like, a classic within uh, African-American cinema. And I was like, yeah, I just find it quite bleak and gratuitous. And, yeah, there's, like, a really famous okay. scene where Lorenz Tate, playing Old Dog, shoots a uh, crackhead, a guy as a crackhead, over some cheeseburgers. Mm. And the way it's kind of recanted in our community, people say it's like as a joke because essentially the guy basically offers to give him a sexual act in exchange for some crack. And mm-hmm. he's like, what? So he shoots him and everyone finds the idea quite funny that he responded to, I suppose, this uh, homosexual advance with violence. And I was like, nah, it just seems very excessive to me. And then I found that the film making Old Dog pretty much the only survivor a really uh, bad message because in the film, Old Dog is, I mean, it's not really a film where there's clear antagonists and protagonists, but I suppose mm-hmm. he's a, a friend of the protagonist and he's known for being very excessively violent. And at the end of the film, he's one of the early survivors. And I feel like the message you're sending people is that like, if you are crazy and shoot before you ask questions, then you're more likely to survive uh, urban youth violence and poverty, which I don't think was the right message to send. And I'm kind of like, hmm, maybe this is the reason why Tupac beat the shit out of the Hughes brothers and that's why he never got to do the film in the end. Because he was originally supposed to play Kane in Menace Society. Oh, really? And he beat the the, I think he beat the shit out of the two brothers on set. And then oh, he wow. ended up doing some time for it because there's a clip of Tupac talking about it on your own TV raps. Really? And, uh, yeah, and he, almost, and he basically snitched on himself to an extent. So, yeah, that, that film probably... Wow. It also stars Jada Pinkett, and I was just like, yeah, I think it sends the wrong message. And also the film Colours, because it's like, I just think at the time, because there's such a lack of context, the film Colours was supposed to show, like, the kind of side of gang-banging culture in LA and how bad it was, and what Mm. it really did was help to spread that gang culture globally. Mm. So the other southern states and various other states in middle America, when people were like, well, how did Bloods and Crips come to your neighbourhood? They're like, well, because we all saw it in Colours. I was like, well... It was surely it was the opposite of what was supposed to happen. So there was a point in the nineties where I think there was just like this explosion of like the biggest a big explosion of like black cinema following like you know the uh, black exploitation of the seventies. Mm. But I think as we discussed in previous episodes of uh, of the podcast, that part of that covenant was that these films had to show one dimension of the black or the African American experience. Yeah. And uh, that wasn't always, obviously wasn't everyone's experience. And I remember I saw something recently when Eddie Murphy was talking about the fact that when he made a film called Boomerang, like, which mm. is about like, you know, successful uh, affluent yeah. black people running yeah. their own business, there was a lot of, that was panned by critics as opposed to when, you know, films like Boys in the Hood or Minister Society, which are lauded for being so overtly violent and graphic. And he was like, you know, it's, it's nothing new. So yeah, Men's Society, I think people like it and people tend to like and focus on these things, which again, I reckon, as I said, is just another wall that people put up to to feign feign not having vulnerability. Fantastic answer. What is the film you've never seen that you think it's mad you've never seen it? Oh, Donnie Darko. That is mad. What is the film you love that you don't expect anyone else to like? (laughs) It's still Beverly Hills Troop. 
which I just think it's just, it's just a classic. I don't know. I think it's, maybe it's because it's just one of the only films I had on VHS as a kid. But I just think it's a great film. It's very funny. And uh, yeah, I just think it's it's just a great film. If I'm going to be if I'm going to be a father someday, and yeah. I have some some young kids, that's going to be one of the go tos. Just on a bank holiday, every every Stunt day. Up, yeah. we're watching Beverly every day. Stuck up with the kids. Yeah, it's raining out. We're watching Beverly Hills Troop. Exactly. Come on, kids. <laughs> this, this may be the man I am today. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like daddy? Yeah, well, this is why. Put it on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What is the film you would show a lover as a test to see if you should be together? See if we'd work. Uh, uh, Two films. One being uh, House Party, because I think, yeah, if you understand that film and the theme. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you don't like, how can you not like Kid and Play? You're not going to like me, I don't think, if you don't like Kid and Play. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I mean, even House Party is a film, like, even, again, on reflection, the comedic talent that was in that film was insane because Kid and Play were in that film, Tisha Campbell was in that film, uh, John Witherspoon was in that film, Robin Harris was in that film. Yeah, and again, I think there was that uh, Reggie Hudlin, I think, directed that, the guy that does The Boondocks. So oh, right. he's involved in it as well. So, um, yeah, it, that film was just it's an amazing it just it shows a lot of time with again that very early film that's still a cult classic, but just shows. And for me, it's been really now that I work in creative uh, fields that mm-hmm. giving people the breadth to kind of realize their potential and innovate within scenes and stuff can only produce a perfect synergy. So yeah, and the other, the other thing would be Parasite. Oh, go I mean, on! Like, I yeah. fucking love that. Film. Well. Basically, I love Parasite, and I showed it to a person I used to live with, and they were like, I don't get it. And I was like, that's why we don't live together anymore. Because <laughs> you don't understand why this stuff is a problem. So, But, yeah, I just think uh, those films kind of show parts of me where it's kind of like, like to be fun and personable. Uh, obviously, my comedic side, which is expressed on one level through House Party, and then my more cerebral side where I am very much concerned about humanitarian issues and uh, how that kind of plays out and the uh, inevitable outcome of class and uh, economic inequity. Uh, and, but what you know, you're also saying with Parasite is, yeah, I care about all those things, but I'm still a, a thrill ride. Yeah, still still fun. I'm still but- fun. I'm still so fun. I still, I still do a dance here and there. Yeah, I'm still, I still party. <laughs> I'm still a, still a party animal, but I care about people. Like, you know, yeah. I, I party, but I still want to make sure that the cups are recyclable. Still want to clean yeah. up afterwards. Everyone gets and, home uh, safely. Everyone gets home safe, yeah. Make sure no one drugs anything. Keep your drinks safe. No one gets in an Uber with a lower than four rating. Exactly. And, no one, and also, nobody is too good or not good enough to be at the party. Everybody's welcome. That's house party. Yeah, because if, if to to have have a house of a, a floor and everyone's having a good time at the on the backs of people that are suffering, that's it's not a good thing. The the outcome when those two worlds collide will be a bad thing. And I think that's not a good time. Uh, anyone that's with me now should understand that that's my main narrative is that like inequality is going to come to a head and human beings are going to be in the conflict for dwindling resources. So we can still have fun, but we should be conscious of those that are below us. Yeah. What is the film that made you the most uncomfortable Dane Bat tweets? 
Um, I, I don't think I even saw its entirety, but I think it'll be Sex in the City too. The one when they go to Dubai. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, depending absolutely. on what people take away from Sex in the City, I think is and for me as well because I love Kim Cattrall. She's the mm. best. Yeah. She's such a great person. I just think that uh, I when a lot of uh, my peers were turned off by the idea of Sex in the City, I took the time to do the due diligence and actually watch it before making any judgments about it based on the title, which I think a lot of men did. And uh, it's a very funny comedy show, great but show. it's a great show. But the only thing I worried about, and, you know, this is not an issue that's gender-based, is I feel like there was a lifestyle being sold to people without them being aware of the consequences. And I think, obviously, them going to Dubai is the epitome of that. Yeah. And I just worry that I think a lot of people that uh, liked Sex and the City liked it because they liked the idea of these archetypes of women being, you know, independent and successful and being achievers in their own right. And for them to kind of try to uh, take that and try to solve the issues or the social issues that they saw in a place like the like Dubai in the space of one film, I was like, this is kind of simplistic. And also suggest that there are not problems at home that require the same level of address as they do in the Emirates. Like the Emirates know who they are. They don't hide it. The issue is about, you know, parts of the West where people pretend this stuff is okay. Like, I don't really even hear women talk about Manolo Blahniks as much as they used to anymore. And that used to be the be-all and end-all when Sex and the City first came out, but yeah. not really mentioned as much. But I guess a lot of people are... I just think, I just feel like, you know, in the same way that, like, colours were supposed to warn against gangs and it mm. helped them to flourish, I think that Sex and the City was supposed to encourage women to not just be dolls for the male gaze. And then if you kind of look at today, there's, I think that seems to have gone in the opposite direction where what's supposed to be empowering seems to really only empowering, be empowering consumerism rather than feminism. Mm. So that's what I was kind of worried about uh, really is that, you know, those ladies are grown women who have very good jobs and that's why they can live the way that they do. And not everyone can do that, especially after a credit crunch. So it should be like a don't try this at home kind of thing for Sex and the City. <laughs> Sex and City 2, don't try this at yeah. home. Don't try this at home. <laughs> um, if you could show a child one film, what would it be, Dane Baptweets? It would be Moonwalker. Why? As a warning? Why? Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, also as a warning, to let these children know, if you become too successful mm-hmm. and you break all records with your album, then stories of your impropriety of children will come out. Um, so he, they should be warned about that, especially my children. But I think, I just think Moonwalker is a, where kids are concerned, it's a masterpiece. I think, you know, when I look at Michael Jackson's aesthetic, that's what you can achieve creatively if you don't feed into this idea that there's a certain way that adults should think and should interpret the world. And, you know, at the time, Michael Jackson must have been in his like what late thirties, early forties when Moonwalker came out, mm-hmm. and you know he turns into a robot and a car, and the robot <laughs> shoots lasers, and he can dance. I mean, it's true. It's just, I, th- I think even today, when you juxtapose the entertainment that is geared towards children on social media today, I'd rather take it down a notch or two and show the Moonwalker, which I think still holds up today. He does turn into a robot and a car. You're right, and he a rabbit, was... and he turns into a, ro- and he and a, into a rabbit. rabbit biker. He was Transformers before the Transformers, or around the same time. Exactly. 
Yeah, he was Transformers from Transformers, and this and it's oh, I don't I'm trying to remember who directed uh, Moonwalker, but yeah, also uh, Joe Pesci's in Moonwalker. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, Pesci's in it. It, it can't all be bad. It can't be all bad, but I think I think kids should see it. I think I think kids should understand how long ago it was, how ahead of his time was, and also because I feel like. There's not going to be another Michael Jackson. I think um, entertainment is so much more democratised in terms of people showing what they like. And I think everyone's chasing that dragon, but there's never going to be another Michael Jackson. So I think it's important for kids to see what celebrity looked like before it was distilled and made mm. into a commodity that you could buy on, on the internet. So, yeah. Interesting. Dave Bapp tweets, you have been... As wonderful and brilliant as ever. In fact, you've been so good that I've decided I'm going to let you live. But thank you. That's not to say that one day, you know, that's not to say you'll be here forever. So just in case something were to happen, what DVD would you like to leave in your will for a loved one? Now, before I was going to say The Avengers, but then I think... If it's for a loved one, may you need a different message. So it's a really tough one. Because I, I don't I don't want to give somebody a complex if I'm no longer here. And I want it to be able to help them. I, I got it. It's going to have to be uh, Malcolm X directed by Spike Lee. I was going to say The Avengers, but I think I'm going to go for Malcolm X directed by Spike Lee. Because I think anyone should have an interest in bit. films. I think that it's a great film. I think Denzel Washington is a great uh, person to set a bar for acting for whoever's watching it. I think... What I want to get across for pe- from people uh, where Malcolm X is concerned is that it's it was it's a much bigger story than a uh, pro-black activist. Like, this is a story about somebody who's mm-hmm. come from abject poverty, someone who was fully steeped in vice and I think and carnality. Yeah. And I think that's a part that people miss. Like, this is not about someone that's holied and down postulating. Like, Malcolm X was a coke dealer. He sniffed coke. He did burglaries. He carried a gun. He used to do numbers. Like, mm. so, you know, at any archetypal story about a criminal, like he embodied all of that as well. He was nomadic in his travels from, you know, living in Detroit to being from Nebraska and to living in Harlem. So many of the themes. So, you know, this is a story that goes from basically being Pulp Fiction to being like a redemption story to to acting selflessly for the great good of people, even at the expense of your own mortality and i think mm. that's a great example to set about how you should live as a human being and uh, so i would definitely leave that and, al- and also i mean it's as it's not completely faithful to the actual book itself but i also like malcolm x was kind of like you know i probably wouldn't even be where i was if it wasn't for my sister and so there's so many elements in terms of what he discusses in terms of like self-image and you know there's, there's nothing that he talks about that is not applicable to today's world, particularly in this mm. part of the world that we live in. So I would definitely say that's the film I'd want anybody who cared about me or anyone to watch that you can come from fucking nothing and not only yourself, but you can lead people to a greater understanding. Um, the comedian Dick Gregory, who, uh, yeah. who passed away quite recently, when he's asked about Malcolm X, he says that uh, this man cleaned up he was he was six foot three and a half and yet he was one of the most so dispoken most polite people you'd ever meet and for me it's like 
I took it on board so much that like I make it a point of principle to almost be painfully polite in everyone I address professionally. There's no reason why you can't address everyone with a please and a thank you and a yes sir and a no madam or uh, even someone is non-binary. There is no reason why you can't take the time to learn someone's pronouns and to uh, respect their existence um, as a massive influence. And you can do all of that whilst taking on the whole fucking world. And for me, I've just never heard a more inspirational story. Like I, I, I think... Uh, reading and watching that film definitely helped in terms of my attitudes towards sexuality and uh, towards uh, vice and um, really helped me to get a much broader understanding of people and never being resistant to listening to anyone's ideas. And I, and for me, that just makes me a so much more peaceful person that being able to indulge the narratives of anyone that is not seeking to call, cause harm or loss to any other sentient being there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to respect and indulge their humanity or their way of thinking. And it's, it's made me a better artist. It's made me a happier person. And yeah, and that's what I mean. It's like when I, when people hear me vocalizing dissent about regressive ideology, it's because I'm, I'm generally of the position like there is no reason. And there are none of us who are in a position where we've completely had mastery over the self that we should be worrying about what any other human being is doing. And, and I, and I generally believe it's like, you know, where depending on how people politically identify, part of that tends to be that like you're a Christian, so you you have to reject other theological belief, or you're a cisgender heterosexual man, so you should reject any notions that about the fluidity of gender. And I'm like, why? What difference does it make to your life? Who gives a fuck? Like, how does this make my life better? Is this helping me towards reaching a state of a higher state of being? And it doesn't. And uh, like, I, I might I might you know falter at this goal, but. That's all I want as a human being. And sometimes I forget because sometimes I'm like, that's nice, but I want money. I want to be successful. Bama shouldn't go for three seasons, which is nice. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like what I, I remember, as much as I like Bama and I love to, to be a series, the reason why Bama exists is to is because like when I was growing up, Brett, like there were people like Mr. Motivator or like Shadow from Gladiators or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Rusty Lee. And whether they realize it or not, like, like I said, just the representation paved the way or was able to implant a seed in my mind. And I've not had the opportunity of having that dialogue with them, but obviously there is a lineage uh, which has allowed me to be in the space that I'm in. And Bamus was to show reverence for that. Uh, but Bamus was also to show that, you know, this is a part of British culture. And by accepting this and encouraging this, we enrich our culture overall. And mm. it's also because for me, it was to at a time where we were so uh, intensely discussing what it means to be black and understanding what identity means in the UK, it was about presenting that in a way that's positive and also actually introducing people to the idea that this is not a new idea. This is not being thrust upon you. This has been a part of your reality for a very long time. And yeah. if you actually look and actually acknowledge, understand this, then what you think are these changes that are shaking the vibrations of British society or Western society aren't actually, they're actually part of the uh, structure that built it. And the sooner we accept that, the more likely we are going to be able to improve our way of life and the way we get on with each other. Because for those people that are encouraging or profiting from divisiveness, what you're not, what you've not worked out is how to uh, replenish the dwindling resources we have in it. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just a. Uh, so I think, yeah, I, I want people to look at that. I want people to look at how it's very easy for you to go the negative way that satisfies your more carnal desires. But there is a, something greater if you uh, give over to it. So, yeah. Same that tweet. You're, you're one of the greats. 
Thank you so Thank much. You. As, I, for, as are you, Brett. Always a pleasure. Thank you for letting me hang out with your brain. I absolutely love it. And I always need to afterwards sit and meditate for an hour. And I mean, half the time I'm like, it's too much. It's too much for one session. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Not at all. Because, you know, it is, I, I just think, I just think, um, I like to think, and, and this is the gratification that most of us want to get when we create art and or when we um, consume art is that there's someone else that feels how we feel or someone else kind of sees it the way we see it. And this internal monologue, which we don't necessarily know is a function of matter or hormone or chemical releases, like someone's presented it in a way we're like, oh, that's how I think. And uh, yeah, it's that life is but a dream in it. So I always say to people, you know, when you're interpreting dreams, you don't tend to do that along the lines of being a man or a woman or a black or white person until you yeah. wake up and then are forced to interpret it along these lines. And mm. so if we can capture everybody in that dream state, then it's going to be the best way for us all to communicate because we are beings of consciousness. So yeah, that's what, that's what, that's what I'm trying to do anyway, just to Love it. make the world easier for us all to live in, I suppose. What would you, is there anything before we go that you should tell people to look out for other than your tour show, which T- tell the dates of that, please. Oh, yes. So, uh, first of all, thanks again for having me on the podcast and thank oh, you to everyone supporting the Patreon. You. It was a pleasure to hang out with you, Mr. <laughs> Britt Goldstein. And uh, please check out um, my uh, I have a YouTube series. It's called The Eight of Blackness, which I did with Little Dot Studios. That's available on my YouTube channel as well. Um, my yeah. tour begins, uh, the final dates of the tour, the 14th to the 19th of March at Soho Theatre. And, uh, yeah, Babies is still available on the BBC iPlayer. So any uh, anyone that's interested, please go onto my social media and click on my link tree and you can find all the links there. Dane Baptweets, what a guy. Thank you for Thank coming you. back to life. Love to you. Love to you too. And I will speak to you soon. Thank you very much. Have a lovely time. Goodbye. My pleasure. Thanks, Brett. Cheers, man. So that was episode 185. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein for the video and secrets and extra stuff with Dane. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, but don't write about the show. Write about the film that means the most to you and why. That's a nice thing to read, isn't it, for everyone. So do that. Go on. Thanks very much. You don't have to. Live your life. Do whatever you want. Thank you so much to Dane for doing the show. Thank you to Scroobius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network. Thanks to Buddy Peace for producing it. Thank you to you all for listening. Thanks to ACAST for hosting it. Thanks to Adam Richardson for the graphics and Lisa Lyland for the photography. Come and join me next week. Oh, 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 have I got a good guest next week? Have I? Yeah, I have actually. Just come and join me. Find out who it is. And if you're listening to this when it comes out, those of you who are coming, I'll see you at the weekend at the big live show. Looking forward to it. I hope you've got some uh, stories to tell. Because I will be asking you. Oh, yeah, I'll be asking. You better be ready. So that is it for now. I really hope you're all well. Meanwhile, have a lovely week. And please, now more than ever, be excellent to each other. Sometimes I dream of becoming an actor. Have you ever dreamt of becoming an actor?
Maureen, what is it you think I do for a living? Never mind, sounds like you need the New York Film Academy. NIFA offers workshops, BFA and MFA degrees and summer camps in filmmaking, acting, journalism and more, online and on campuses across the globe. To make films alongside industry professionals, explore more at nyfa.edu. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, Maureen. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.